0: Section 19 of Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident. Chapter 9. Other Safety Considerations. Part 1. In the course of its investigation, the Commission became aware of a number of matters that played no part in the Mission 51-L accident, but nonetheless hold a potential for safety problems in the future. Some of these matters, those involving operational concerns, were brought directly to the Commission's attention by the NASA Astronaut Office. They were the subject of a special hearing. Other areas of concern came to light as the Commission pursued various lines of investigation in its attempt to isolate the cause of the accident. These inquiries examined such aspects as the development and operation of each of the elements of the Space Shuttle, the orbiter, its main engines, and the external tank. The procedures employed in the processing and assembly of 51L and launch damage. This chapter examines potential risks in two general areas. The first embraces critical aspects of a shuttle flight. For example, considerations related to a possible premature mission termination during the ascent phase and the risk factors connected with the demanding approach and landing phase. The other focuses on testing, processing, and assembling the various elements of the shuttle. Ascent, a critical phase The events of Flight 51L dramatically illustrated the dangers of the first stage of a space shuttle ascent. The accident also focused attention on the issues of orbiter abort capabilities and crew escape. Of particular concern to the Commission are the current abort capabilities, options to improve those capabilities, options for crew escape and the performance of the range safety system. It is not the Commission's intent to second-guess the space shuttle design or try to depict escape provisions that might have saved the 51L crew. In fact, the events that led to destruction of the Challenger progressed very rapidly and without warning. Under those circumstances, the Commission believes it is highly unlikely that any of the systems discussed below, or any combination of those systems, would have saved the flight 51L crew. Various unexpected conditions during ascent can require premature termination of a shuttle mission. The method of termination or abort depends upon the nature of the unexpected condition and when it occurs. The space shuttle is lifted to orbit by thrust from its two solid rockets and three main engines. The design criteria for the shuttle specify that if a single main engine is lost at any time between liftoff and normal main engine cutoff, the shuttle must be able to continue to orbit or to execute an intact abort, that is, make a survivable landing on a runway. That design requirement has been met. If a single main engine is lost early in ascent, the shuttle can return to make an emergency landing at Kennedy, a return to launch site abort. If the failure occurs later, the shuttle can make an emergency landing in Africa or Europe, a transatlantic abort landing if the failure occurs during the last part of the ascent the shuttle can proceed around the earth to a landing in the continental united states abort once around or can continue to a lower than planned orbit abort to orbit indeed if the failure occurs late enough the shuttle will achieve the intended orbital conditions return to launch site abort if the termination is necessary because of loss of a main engine during the first four minutes of the flight the shuttle has the capability to fly back to the launch site. It continues downrange to burn excess propellant, and at the proper point it turns back towards Florida. The computers shut down the remaining two engines and separate the orbiter from the external tank, which falls into the Atlantic Ocean. The orbiter then glides to a landing on the runway at the shuttle landing facility at Kennedy. Transatlantic Abort during ascent there comes a time when the shuttle is too far down range to fly back to kennedy if it suffers an engine failure after that point but has not yet achieved enough energy to continue toward orbit it will have to land on the other side of the atlantic it will continue on a special flight path until it achieves the energy necessary to glide to the landing site at that point the shuttle computers will cut off the two remaining engines and separate the orbiter from the external tank. The shuttle will then re-enter the lower atmosphere, much like a normal entry. The landing, however, will be at a pre-selected site in Africa or Europe. DESIGN The shuttle design specifications do not require that the orbiter be able to manage an intact abort, i.e. make it to a runway, if a second main engine should fail if two or all three main engines fail within the first five to six minutes of the flight the space shuttle will land in water this maneuver is called a contingency abort and is not believed to be survivable because of damage incurred at water impact the shuttle design requirement did not specify that the shuttle should be able to survive a solid rocket booster failure the system has no way to identify when a booster is about to fail In no way to get the orbiter or the crew away from a failing solid rocket booster, crew survival during ascent rests on the following assumptions. One, the solid rocket boosters will work from ignition to plant separation. Two, if more than one main engine fails, the crew must be able to survive a water landing. Shuttle Abort Enhancements Between 1973 and 1983, first-stage abort provisions were assessed many times by all levels of NASA management. Many methods of saving the orbiter and or crew from emergencies during first stage were considered. Ejection seats, which afforded only limited protection during first stage, were provided for the two-man crews of the Orbital Flight Test Program, the first four shuttle flights. Other options for operational flights carrying crews of five or more astronauts were considered, but were not implemented because of limited utility, technical complexity, and excessive cost in dollars, weight, or scheduled delays. Because of these factors, NASA adopted the philosophy that the reliability of first-stage ascent must be assured, and that design and testing must preclude time-critical failures that would require emergency action before normal solid rocket booster burnout. That philosophy has been reviewed many times during the Space Shuttle program and is appropriately being reevaluated, as are all first stage abort options in light of the 51L accident. Early orbital separation. If a problem arose that required the orbiter to get away from failing solid rocket boosters, the separation would have to be performed extremely quickly. Time would be of the essence for two reasons. First, as 51L demonstrated, if a problem develops in a solid rocket booster, it can escalate very rapidly. Second, the ascent trajectory is carefully designed to control the aerodynamic loads on the vehicle. Very small deviation from the normal path will produce excessive loads, so if the vehicle begins to diverge from its path, there is very little time, seconds, before structural breakup will occur. The normal separation sequence to free the shuttle from the rest of the system takes 18 seconds, far too long to be of use during a first-stage contingency. Vast separation was formally established by review item discrepancy o 03.00.151, which stated the requirement to separate the orbiter from the external tank at any time. The sequence was referred to as fast separation because delays required during normal separation were bypassed or drastically shortened in order to achieve separation in approximately 3 seconds. Some risk was accepted to obtain this contingency capability. Fast separation was incorporated into the flight software, so that technically this capability does exist. Unfortunately, analysis has shown that if it is attempted while the solid rocket boosters are still thrusting, the orbiter will hang up on its aft attach points and pitch violently, with probable loss of the orbiter and crew. In summary, as long as the solid rocket boosters are still thrusting, fast separation does not provide a way to escape. It would be useful during the first stage only if solid rocket booster thrust could first be terminated the current concept of fast separation does however have some use contingency aborts resulting from loss of two or three main engines early in ascent are time critical and every fraction of a second that can be trimmed from the separation sequence helps these abort procedures are executed after the solid rocket boosters are expended and fast separation is used to reduce the time required for separation as the shuttle must attain entry altitude very quickly. Unfortunately, all contingency aborts culminated water impact. Thrust Termination Thrust termination, or thrust neutralization, as originally proposed for the space shuttle, was a concept conceived for the Titan 3M booster, intended for use in the manned orbiting laboratory program. The objective of thrust termination is to either extinguish or reduce the thrust of the solid rocket booster in an emergency situation with this thrust terminated emergency options such as crew ejection or fast separation might become feasible during the first two minutes of flight the principal drawback is that thrust termination itself introduces high dynamic loads that could cause shuttle structural components to fail Early design reviews suggested that to strengthen the orbiter to withstand the stresses caused by rapid thrust termination would require an additional, prohibitive 19,600 pounds. Thrust termination was deleted from design consideration on April 27, 1973, by Space Shuttle Directive SS-00040. Key factors in the decision were that one, Proper design would be stressed to prevent solid rocket booster failure, and two, other first stage ascent systems provided enough redundancy to allow delaying an abort until after the solid rocket boosters burned out. The subject arose again in 1979 when Space Shuttle Directive S13141 required the system contractor to determine the time over which thrust reduction must be spread so that the deceleration loads would not destroy the orbiter. Marshall analyzed the thrust decay curves submitted by the contractor and concluded that achieving the required thrust decay rates was impractical. On July 12, 1982, the Associate Administrator for Space Transportation Systems requested reconsideration of thrust termination. Gerald Griffin, director of Johnson, responded to the request in a letter dated September 9, 1982, as follows. In our opinion, further study of a thrust termination system for the SRB, Solid Rocket Booster, would not be productive. The potential failure modes, which could result in a set of conditions requiring SRB thrust termination, are either very remote or a result of primary structural failure the structural failure risk would normally be accepted as a part of the factor of safety verification by analysis or test. In addition, any thrust termination system is going to be extremely heavy, very costly, and at best present some risk to the orbiter and ET external tank. Venting of trot gases in the shock load or pressure spike have the potential for being as great a hazard as the problem to be corrected. It does not appear that a practical approach exists for achieving the desired pressure decay rate without a major redesign of the motor. In retrospect, the possibility of solid rocket booster failures was neither very remote nor limited to primary structural failure. Although it would not have helped on Mission 51L, thrust termination is the key to any successful first-stage abort, and new ideas and technology should be examined If a thrust termination system is eventually deemed feasible, that is, the orbiter external tank will still be intact after the rapid deceleration, it cannot have failure modes that would cause an uncommanded neutralization of the thrust of one or both of the solid rocket boosters. If thrust termination were to be implemented, reliable detection mechanisms and reliable decision criteria would be mandatory. Ditching. As previously discussed, Most contingency aborts, those resulting from failure of two or three main engines during the first five to six minutes of flight, result in a water landing or ditching. In addition, if the space shuttle did have a thrust termination capability to use with fast separation to allow it to separate from failing solid rockets, the orbiter would have to ditch in the water unless the failure occurred during a small window, 50 to 70 seconds after launch. Accordingly, whether the crew can survive a water impact is a critical question. In 1974 and 1975, ditching studies were conducted at Langley Research Center. Although test limitations precluded definitive conclusions, the studies suggested that the loads at water impact would be high. The deceleration would most probably cause structural failure of the crew cabin support ties to the fuselage which would impede crew egress and possibly flood the cabin furthermore payloads in the cargo bay are not designed to withstand decelerations as high as those expected and would very possibly break free and travel forward to the crew cabin the langley report does state that the orbiter shape and mass properties are good for ditching but given the structural problems and deceleration loads that is little consolation orbiter ditching was discussed by the crew safety panel and at orbiter flight techniques meetings before the first shuttle flight the consensus of these groups was that one ditching is more hazardous than suggested by the early langley test and two ditching is probably not survivable this view was reiterated in the september 9, nineteen eighty two letter from griffin to abrahamson we also suggest no further effort be expended to study bailout or ditching there is considerable doubt that either case is technically feasible with the present orbiter design even if a technical solution can be found the impact of providing either capability is so severe in terms of cost and schedule as to make them impractical there is no evidence that a shuttle crew would survive a water impact since all contingency aborts and all first-stage abort capabilities that are being studied culminate in a water impact, an additional provision for crew escape before impact should also be considered. Astronaut Paul Weitz expressed this before the commission on April 3, 1986. My feeling is so strong that the orbiter will not survive a ditching, and that includes land, water, or any unprepared surface. I think if we put the crew in a position where they're going to be asked to do a contingency abort, then they need some means to get out of the vehicle before it contacts Earth, the surface of the Earth. Crew Escape Options In a study conducted before the orbiter contract was awarded, Rockwell International evaluated a range of ejection systems. Rockwell International Incorporated, Phase B Study, 1971 The table shows the results comparing three systems, ejection seats, encapsulated ejection seats, and a separable crew compartment. The development costs are in 1971 dollars, and the costs and weights cited were those required to incorporate these systems into the developing orbiter design, not to modify an existing orbiter. The only system that could provide protection for more than the two-man experimental flight crew was the separable crew compartment, which would add substantial weight and development costs. All these systems had limitations in their ability to provide successful escape, and all would require advance warning of an impending hazard from reliable data sources. The Request for Proposal, written in April 1971, reference paragraph 1.3.6.2.1, states, Provision shall be made for rapid emergency egress of the crew during development test flights. Ejection seats were selected as the emergency escape system. The objective was to offer the crew some protection, though limited, from risks of the test flights. The philosophy was that after the test flights, all unknowns would be resolved and the vehicle would be certified for operational flights. Conventional ejection seats, similar to those installed in the Lockheed F 12, SR 71, were selected shortly after the orbiter contract was awarded. They were subsequently incorporated into Columbia and were available for the first four flights. The ejection could be initiated by either crew member and would be used in the event of uncontrolled flight, onboard fire, or pending landings on unprepared surfaces. The escape sequence required approximately 15 seconds for the crew to recognize pending disaster, initiate the sequence, and get a safe distance away from the vehicle. Although the seats were originally intended for use during first-stage ascent or during gliding flight below 100,000 feet, analysis showed that the crew would be exposed to the solid rocket booster and main engine exhaust plumes if they ejected during ascent. During descent, the seats provided good protection from about 100,000 feet to landing. After the space shuttle completed the four test flights, it was certified for operational flights but missions for the operational flights required more crew members, and there were no known ejection systems other than an entire crew escape module that could remove the entire crew within the necessary time. The orbiter configuration allowed room for only two ejection seats on the flight deck. With alternative ejection concepts and redesign of the flight deck, this number might have been increased slightly, but not to the full crew size. Thus, because of limited utility during first stage ascent and inability to accommodate a full crew, the ejection seats were eliminated for operational flights. The present shuttle has no means for crew escape, either during first stage ascent or during gliding flight. Conventional ejection seats do not appear to be viable space shuttle options because they severely limit the crew size and therefore prevent the space shuttle from accomplishing its mission objectives. The remaining options fall into three categories. 1. Escape module. The entire crew compartment would be separated from the orbiter and descend by parachute. 2. Rocket-assisted extraction. Many military aircraft employ a system using a variety of small rocket-assisted devices to boost occupants from the plane. Such a system could be used in the orbiter. 3. Bailout system the crew can exit unassisted through a hatch during controlled gliding flight only one of these the escape module offers the possibility of escape during first stage ascent its use would probably be practical only after thrust termination it should be noted that in all cases of crew escape the orbiter would be lost but in cases of solid rocket booster failure or or orbiter ditching the vehicle would be lost anyway The utility and feasibility of each method are described below. An escape module can offer an opportunity for crew escape at all altitudes during a first-stage time-critical emergency, if the escape system itself is not damaged to the point that it cannot function. The module must be sufficiently far from the vehicle at the time of catastrophe that neither it nor its descent system is destroyed incorporation of an escape module would require significant redesign of the orbiter some structural reinforcement pyrotechnic devices to sever the escape module from the rest of the orbiter modifications to sever connections that supply power and fluids separation rockets in a parachute system an additional weight penalty would result from the requirement to add mass in the rear of the orbiter to compensate for the forward shift in the center of gravity recent estimates indicate that this could add as much as thirty thousand pounds to the weight of the orbiter this increase in weight would reduce payload capacity considerably perhaps unacceptably there is no current estimate of the attendant cost an escape module does theoretically offer the widest range of crew escape options The other two options, rocket extraction and bailout, are only practical during gliding flight. Both methods would be useful when the orbiter could not reach a prepared runway, for they would allow the crew to escape before a very hazardous landing or a water ditching. Aerodynamic model tests show that a crew member bailing out through either the side or overhead hatch would subsequently contact the wing, tail, or orbital maneuvering system pod unless he or she could exit with sufficient velocity, over 5 to 10 feet per second, to avoid these obstacles. Slides and pendant rocket systems were evaluated as means of providing this velocity, but all concepts of bailout and rocket extraction that were studied require many minutes to get the entire crew out and would be practical only during controlled gliding flight. The results of these studies were presented at the Program Requirements Change Board session held on May 12, 1983, and subsequently to the NASA Administrator, but none of the alternatives was implemented because of limited capability and resulting program impacts. There is much discussion and disagreement over which escape systems are feasible, or whether any provide protection against a significant number of failure modes. The astronauts, testifying before the commission on April 3, 1986, agree that it does not appear practical to modify the orbiter to incorporate an escape module. The astronauts disagreed, however, about which of the other two systems would be preferable. As astronaut Weitz testified, John, astronaut John Young, likes the rocket extraction system because it does cover a wider flight regime and allows you to get out perhaps with a vehicle only under partial control as opposed to complete control. However, any system that adds more parts, like rockets, gets more complex. The only kind of a system that I think is even somehow feasible would be maybe some kind of a bailout system that could be used subsonic. In its 1982 annual report, the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel listed crew escape at launch and prior to potential ditching as a priority item that warranted further study. The Commission fully supports such studies. In particular, the Commission believes that the crew should have a means of escaping the orbiter in controlled gliding flight. The Commission thinks it crucial that the vehicle that will carry astronauts into orbit through the decade and the next incorporate systems that provide some chance for crew survival in emergencies. It none the less accepts the following point made by astronaut Robert Crippen: I don't know of an escape system that would have saved the crew from the particular incident that we just went through, the Challenger accident. End of section 19.